The following audio is from Sacred City Church. For more information, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Now Lot went up out of Zor and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zor. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters, and the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come in to us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay with, fa- with sorry. Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both of the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. This is the word of the Lord. You. you may be seated. Good morning. How are we doing? Good. Good. I want to welcome. Let's talk about some incest, huh? <laughs> right? Great way to start off. Let's do this. Hey, uh, I want to welcome you to Sacred City Church. My name is Justin. I'm the pastor around these parts. We are a church full of missional communities, uh, basically gospel-centered families that live on mission with each other that spread out throughout the city. And this, if you're attending us for the first time, this is a gathering of those missional communities where we come under the authority of the word of God. We hear the word preached. We hear the word read. We're inside the liturgy. We repent of our sin. We're encouraged. We're trained up and we're sent back out on mission to our city. That's the purpose of this. So I want you to understand that this gathering is targeted towards believers. So if you're not a believer today, we welcome you. We want you to hear. We want you to listen. We want you to hear about the gospel and we, and kind of, un, but there's some things that just you won't get and that you won't understand. And that's okay. That's okay. But we welcome, we do welcome you here. Um, I, we don't ever, we don't usually do this, but I want to make a couple announcements real quick. If you are new to Sacred City Church, um, we, we don't do bulletins. Uh, we don't do announcements like this uh, very, very rarely. Um, we have what's called the city. It's a social networking, networking site. It's kind of like Facebook and all of our announcements, all of our events, all of our missional communities. If you want to find out more about us, you go to the box office back there and you can sign up for the city. Maybe there's some paperwork back there. You can also grab, but we want you to do that. Um, and this week specifically, I, I will be posting or the next few weeks, I'm going to be posting some significant posts on there that I want to make every, everyone aware of. So if you have signed up, make sure also that your email settings are, are set up correctly so that you're, you're getting the posts um, to your email and you're m- being made aware of it because we're, we're about to step into a season of Lent and I'm going to be, making, I'm going to be posting a lot about that through um, the city. And then secondly, um, a lot of us, many of us, do not know how to read our Bible. We don't know how to study our Bible. We've never been trained to read our Bible. Um, we we kind of read it like we read any other book, and it's not like any other book, so it need, we need some tools to help us. So um, one of the things that we've offered in the past that has been really beneficial and people have really enjoyed is a Bible 101 class. So we're doing it again. Um, it's next Sunday night. 
It's going to be at um, Front Street Brewery in, um, in downtown Davenport. We're going to be in the, in, the, in the downstairs area of Front Street. It's from 6 to 8. Um, I'll, be, I'll be teaching that. We'll be walking through. I'm going to give you some principles, some, some, some tools to help you read the Bible, interpret the Bible, apply the Bible to your life. So I want to encourage everyone, next Sunday night, 6 o'clock, Front Street Brewery, just making it known for everyone. That's on the city. You can RSVP for it there on the city. All right, I think that's all I had for you. I'm going to go ahead and pray. Merciful God, we thank you for drawing us in from all across the city, all across this nation of ours, drawing us in as your people, under your word, to hear from your spirit today. Father, we do humble ourselves. We are not God. We are not you. We are not all-knowing. We are not all-powerful. Our lives are out of our control. We want to recognize that, and we ask the God who is in control of all things, the God who is is all-powerful and nothing happens without his approval, we ask you to be present today in the reading of your word and the preaching of your word, Father, I ask that you would think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords. I ask that you would hear through our ears, that you would speak to our heart, that you would do what only you can do, and that is make dead hearts come alive. We ask for those of us who've walked away from you, for those of us who have backslidden and our hearts have become hardened and we've become calloused, that the word of God that's sharper than a two-edged sword would pierce through that callousness, would cut us open. Father, that you would remake us in your image. We would experience what it feels like to be a new creation in Christ, that all things are made new, that Jesus, you sit on high. You are Lord of all right now. You are in control of all things. You are all powerful right now. And we thank you that we get to serve a risen Jesus Christ who reigns in all authority and all power. We ask that you would Convince us and convict us of your gospel this morning. All glory to you, to your name, and to your fame. In Jesus' name, amen. This is going to be a little bit different of a sermon this week. I'm just going to let you know because it's really... I pretty much preached this sermon last week, okay? So we're just at the end of what happened last week. So it's going to be hard for me. A lot of the motivation of what's going to happen out of this sermon came from last week. So if you missed this last week, I really encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon. All right? It's a sermon that shocks me. It's a Bible story that shocks me. So we're just tagging on to that. I hope it makes sense if this is your first time here. I hope it makes sense if you weren't here last week. But that's just where we're headed. I'm going to let you know. Now listen, sometime in the 1970s and the early 1980s, a subtle shift began happening in our North American churches. The shift was toward what is now being called seeker sensitivity. It was basically the concept that our churches should sand off the rough edges of Christianity. We should ditch weird things like the liturgy and replace things that the church had practiced for centuries with new marketing practices and strategies. 
This was all done in order to meet the felt needs of the nominal Christian or the non-Christian. Pastors were told to make people feel welcome and make people feel at home in their services. Make them feel comfortable so that they will come back. Greet them with a big smile, with a team full of greeters and rally, you know, have like a rally mentality. This has led, now listen, this has led to the normality of the megachurch. People have seemingly flocked in droves under this type of gathering. So in many circles, this is still going on because they see it as a success. Any marketing manager or or marketing department will let you know if you market things, people will come. People will buy your product, right? Better marketing equals better results. So if you market the church and if you soften off some edges and you make it more fun and make it more lively, and you're talking about current things like how to get rid of stress and, and, and how to make more money or how to be you know, better stewards of your money and how to invest properly. If you target the message in those ways, you'll get more people. And that's true. But the seeker-sensitive movement has a dark side as well. With the softening of the message to meet the felt needs of the American, much of true gospel preaching has been lost. Many churches today feel far more like a business meeting or a pep rally than than the gathering of God's people seeking above all things the presence of a holy God. Very rarely do you walk out of a gathering feeling, I feel humbled to the dust. Like David, I am a worm of a man. How could a holy God love me? And that's what happens when you come into the presence of a holy God. You're humbled to the dirt, but then you're given this boldness that I'm a worm, but he loves me. Praise God, he loves worms. (laughs) Right? Instead of walking out of church with a swagger saying, he can help me have my best life now. Right? The gospel message is meant to convict us of our sin and convince us of the need for the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. But this message has been soft-pedaled into a mere gospel massage where Jesus can be your boyfriend, your guru, your life coach, your homeboy, or your personal genie-in-a-bottle baby. One of the most disparaging consequences of this seeker-sensitive movement has been the dumbing down of people who claim to be disciples of Jesus. People who claim to be Christian, they don't fear God. They don't go very deep with their faith. When they're polled across the board, they, they don't read, I mean, they don't pray, they don't read their Bible, they only come to God when they need help. They don't understand the nuances of the gospel, the nuances of our faith. If you go to most Christians today and you tell them like this, you, may, you know, you come to them and you say that you're going through a really difficult time, you're going through a really dark season. Puritans used to call it a dark night of the soul. Life's not going well and, and you don't really know. Maybe your kids are running away from Jesus at the moment. Maybe your marriage is having some, some serious struggles. 
Maybe your finances are gone. Maybe you went bankrupt. Maybe who knows? But you go to most Christians today and you're in this dark season. And what are they going to say? They're going to say the same stinking thing. Oh, it's going to work out, brother. It'll all work out. Trust and obey. There's no other way. It'll all work out. I think that the seeker-sensitive church model has created a whole generation of disciples with a Bob Marley theology. Don't worry. Be happy. Right? That's what... That's what you, you bring your problems? Oh, don't worry. Turn that frown upside down. That's their theology. Everything will work out. It's going to be okay. Don't worry about it. How many times has somebody told you, don't worry, it'll be okay? Are you God? Because James tells us not even to say what we're going to do. Thank you. (laughs) Amen. Good theology back there. Train them up in the way that he should go. James tells us we shouldn't even say, I'm going to go to this city next week. I'm going to go to this city next month because we're not God. We don't know what tomorrow holds. Well, and and, and for the nominal Christian, this is their favorite verse. And I I just hold, hold on before you stone me. Romans 8, 28, right? All things, hey, all things work together for the good of those who believe, brother. All things work together. It's going to work out. All things work together for those who believe. Right? Now listen, don't get me wrong. That verse is true and a precious promise to the believer. But the way most of us use it and the way that the nominal Christian and the seeker-sensitive movement use it is just bad exegesis. It's a bad interpretation. That text is not saying that all things will work out in a way that you think is good. The next verse, verse 29, goes on to say, it gives us context and it tells us the reason things work out to our good is because we have been predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus. So when Romans 8.28 says that all things work together for our good, Romans 8.29 tells us what our good is. To be in closer fellowship with God, closer likeness to Jesus. It does not mean that it will go well for us. We took 12 guys up to the Minneapolis to Desire and God conferences this week. It was a great time for some of our men. One of the speakers said, um, we, ser- we serve a God who was crucified. Jesus It did not go well for him. He died on a cross. That should be a hint. That's a big hint for our life. The seeker-sensitive message of come to Jesus and he will make your life better is a lie and a sham. I'm going to say that again. The seeker-sensitive message of come to Jesus and he will make your life better is a lie and a sham. Now listen, Jesus is better than life. Yes and amen. But you coming to Jesus can end very badly for you. You need to hear that. He might call you to be a missionary to Iran. You might giggle at that. He's in the business of that. Go to all the nations, baptizing them, preaching the gospel, baptizing them, teaching them to obey all that I command. All the nations. We're called to go to all the nations. God might call you to go to Iran. I don't care if you're 60, 70, 20, 30. God might be calling you to do that. 
And in Iran, you know, it's still illegal, illegal to be a Christian. 89% of the population is Shi'i Islam, and the courts have the right to impose a death sentence upon you for your conversion to Christ. They have a legal right to kill you if you convert to Christianity in Iran. It's going on in our world. Seeker-sensitive people, move to Iran, please. Come to Jesus, it'll go well for you. Oh, that guy just got killed. How'd it go well for him? Seeker-sensitive movement is an American ideology. It's a lie and a sham. Come to, coming to faith in Christ might cause your entire family to call you crazy. Jesus promised this. It might separate your friendships. Jesus promised this. It might hurt your bank account. Jesus promised this. Go sell everything you own and give it to the poor. Jesus promised this. It might eat up the majority of your free time. Jesus promised this. And also, just because you come to Christ does not mean that you're going to finish well. Ecclesiastes 7.8 says, Better the end of a thing than its beginning. Anybody can start out good. It's hard to finish well. Not only do we, so not only do we have the possibility of being persecuted for our faith and things not going well, we also have the possibility, hear me now, of disobeying God and the wheels coming off our life. Persecution doesn't scare me as much as rebellion does. Persecution and suffering can help shape us into the image of Jesus. Rebellion and unrepentance is a life-destroying, legacy-removing, family-cursing time bomb that can go off at any time. I was reading a great commentary this week by Kent Hughes, and he said this, What we need is a shocking biblical example of a believer finishing unwell. That rocked me. It arrested me. What we need is a shocking biblical example of a believer finishing unwell. If you were like me and you grew up in a church filled with this type of blind optimism, this come to Jesus and things will work out nicely, this kind of theology of, oh, get like for the, for the young married, right? just get married and everything will work out. People have been married for a while. How's that, how'd that go? I go, do, do we remember? Do, we re- did, yeah. do you ever remember meeting with a counselor and going, listen, all of these things would just be solved if we could just get married, Right? This is, this is going, the only reason this happening is because we're not married. You know, we have these relational issues because she's living there and I'm living here. These sexual issues because, you know, we're in t- Once we get married, it's just going to work out. And the, and the counselor kind of shook his head and kind of was like, no, I don't think it will. And you're like, maybe for you, we have the spirit of God. Listen. I think we need to be shocked out of that theology. And I think that is exactly what today's text is supposed to do. Combining this week's text with last week's text. 
Okay. Quick run through. We, we, this is what happens. Um, way back 30 years before, 30, yeah, I think it's 30 years before, God calls Abram into a covenantal relationship with himself. And Lot sees that and Lot goes along with Abram because Lot is his nephew and they go along together. And so Lot is inside the covenant there. He's inside of some covenant blessings. He responds in faith and he's a believer and he's one of God's children. But what we see in Lot's life is the wheels come off because Lot consistently disobeys God. He consistently seeks his own way rather than God's way. He, can seek, he consistently goes inside himself and makes decisions instead of going to his knees in prayer. And we see him make successive bad decisions. He looks over the land and says, ooh, I like that land with that, that city of Sodom over there. That looks like a good land. And he gets close to it, and pushes his tent, moves in. Then he gets a little closer. Then he eventually moves into the city. Things go bad. It gets raided, taken off into captivity. Uncle Abe, praise God for Father Abraham, a man of faith, goes after him and rescues him and saves him out of in the enemy camp, a picture of the gospel. Lot did nothing to save himself, but Abraham marches in and, and rescues him, saves him. But Lot, the genius, doesn't learn from his mistakes, doesn't turn from his sin, doesn't repent and seek reconciliation in the gospel. What does he do? He moves right back into Sodom. Not only does he move back in, he buys a house. He becomes a pol like a politician, like one of the leading men of the city. Moves into Sin City. No churches in the city. No gospel in the city. No word of God being preached in the city. It's surrounded by paganism. It's surrounded by sin. And then what we saw last week, Jesus shows up with two angels and says, I'm going to destroy this city because they're unrepentant. Abraham pleads for Lot. So the angels go in, they check everybody out. And what do the men of the city do? Crazy, crazy text. People were leaving, left, you know, to call me this week. Said, I didn't know that kind of stuff was in the Bible. Yeah. They tried all the men of the city to want to rape, homosexually rape, gang rape the two angels. The angels blind them. And yes, that is where we get the term sodomy from. If some of you kind of didn't put that together last week, this is where we get the term sodomy from. The people, the men of Sodom. They try to rape them. God says, get out, get your family out, Lot. Lot's influence is gone. He tries to convince them they don't want to leave. Lot's internal motivation is gone. Lot's conviction of sin is gone. Lot's been hardened and, and, and calloused over his heart. So the angel says, get up and go. I'm about to wipe. God's going to send fire down and wipe this whole city. He's like, ah, I'll, I'll do it in the morning. I need a good eight hours first. It's a long walk, right? So what's the angel do? Grabs him, picks him up, throws him over his shoulder. Well, metaphorically, grabs him by the hand, pulls him out, drags him out of the city. A picture again of the gospel. God comes in, saves us while we're yet sinners. And that's what happens. And in 2 Peter 2, and now, okay, so now we have today. Well, I'm going to go there. And what makes the story crazy is in 2 Peter 2, Lot is called a righteous man. But by the end of today's narrative, Lot has lost his home. He's lost his city. He's lost his friends. He's lost his wife. He's lost his sons-in-law. He lost his daughters. He's lost his joy. And he disappears 
from the pages of history. We're never going to hear of Lot again in the Old Testament. This is the end of him. This is the last time we see or hear of Lot in the Old Testament. Now listen, unlike the Apostle Paul or unlike Jesus, Lot doesn't lose these things because he's being persecuted for his faith. No, he lost them because Lot refused to fight his sin. Lot was saved, but Lot wasted his life. It did not end well for him. The time bomb of his own negligence and sin went off. And he was saved, but barely as one who narrowly escapes the flames, as the New Testament tells us. Is that how you want to go out? Like Lot or Samson with tons of potential, with all the opportunities in the world to make an impact for Christ, but your life goes down in flames because you haven't went to war with your sin? It's my prayer today that the message of Genesis 19 and the story of Lot would shock us out of our velvet-lined Christianity. It would be like the paddles of a defibrillator that would restart our heart and give us a chance, a new chance to finish well. I like what, excuse me, I like the way John Piper says it. Until you believe that life is war, that the stakes are your soul, you will probably just play at Christianity with no blood earnestness, and no vigilance, and no passion, and no wartime mindset. If that is where you are this morning, your position is very precarious. The enemy has lulled you into sleep, or into a peacetime mentality, as if nothing serious is at stake. And God, in His mercy, has you here this morning, and had this sermon appointed to wake you up, and to put you on wartime footing. Now, a few, a few of us in here knows what it's like to be on wartime footing and to have a wartime mentality. I've been told by some of our combat veterans that in a war zone, your senses, all, all of your senses get pushed to the extreme. At the slightest noise, you're, you're just on edge, right? If you're in the wood, the snap of a branch, boom, you're on edge. At the slightest scent on the breeze, your adrenaline starts pumping. It's like being truly alive. Life or death can be decided by fractions of a second, and your heightened sense can help you stay alive. Right? I know what this is like. I've played paintball. But you take that same soldier... And you put him on leave. You put him on furlough in peacetime and he develops this peacetime mentality and he becomes vulnerable to attack, right? He's too busy getting drunk and chasing women to realize he's actually still in a hot zone. I think if the church in America has been lulled into a peacetime living. We've been lulled into believing that we're at peace. 
And we need to be shocked into the realization that we are currently living in a spiritual war zone. That we have an enemy who wants nothing more than to steal from God's people, to kill them, and to destroy their legacies. Oh, you could be saved. Barely as one narrowly escaping the flames. Is that your legacy? Is that what you want to pass down to your kids? A life with the wheels off? But hey, he made it. He, we think he's in heaven. And if Kent Hughes is right, we need to see an enemy bullet. We need to see an enemy bullet rip through the chest of a living, breathing believer to snap us out of the American dream. And that's what we see today. That's what we see in Lot. Go to chapter 19, verse 30. Again, I know we're using the text before now, and this this is a different sermon, but it's got to be. We're not getting six points. (laughs) You're not getting six points of how not to sleep with your daughters, okay? I mean, sorry. Look at verse 1, or verse 31, or... Verse 30. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. What? Do you remember what happened last week? Lot begged the angels. The angels said, go to the mountains. He said, no, let me stay in the city. I'm a city boy. I like the city. I like the comforts of the city. I want to stay in the city. And now he's hightailing it to the mountains. They told him to go to the mountains, but he wanted to live in a city. Now we see him afraid to live in the city. And taking off to the mountains, Lot was being led by his fears and not his faith. Bottom line, Lot's being led around by his fears and not his faith. This guy is just all over the place. After seeing Jesus, well, let's just put this in perspective here. All right. After seeing Jesus, two angels and God wipe out a whole town full of sodomites, including his own wife, Lot probably had PTSD, right? Post-traumatic, more than likely he walked with a twitch the rest of his life, right? Saw everybody, everybody, boom, raining down, hot tar from the heavens, wipes out the city. His wife looks back, turns to a pillar of salt. Lot is probably scared to death. He doesn't want to live in any other city. He's like, get me to the mountains, right? He thinks God could hit the nuke button at any moment. Again, this is just a clear juxtaposition with Abraham. Abraham gets confused and Abraham has doubts and Abraham struggles like all of us do. And what does Abraham do? Abraham gets on his knees before God. Abraham remembers the covenant. Abraham prays to Jesus. What does Lot do? Lot tries to handle it on his own. So now we have PTSD Lot living in a cave with his two grown daughters. Not to mention that one of the last things Lot did in Sodom was offer up his daughters to be gang raped. Do we remember that? Hey, don't rape these men. Here's my virgin daughters. Dad fail, right? Bad moment. So now... Can you imagine this? Lot, two daughters living in a cave, scared to death. That's just depressing. I don't see a lot of fruitful conversation and hopeful discipleship going on here. 
I see Lot living a life of sin, reaping the consequences, and then refusing to repent and seek the means of grace that God had given him. Now, means of grace, that's an old-timer's term that I like to use. Means of grace are some means of grace, Bible study, prayer, fellowship, community, uh, faith, you know, repentance. These are all means of grace. He doesn't do that. What did he have back then? Well, he could have went back to Abraham. His uncle received the covenant. His uncle's walking with God. His uncle understands the gospel. Lot could have went back with it. Okay, they blew my town up. God blew my town up. I should probably go out back with Abe. No, instead he goes and hides in a cave. Hmm. Hmm. How many of us confronted with our sin? We know we should seek out community, but we'd rather go to our cave. He could have remembered the covenant, preached the gospel to himself. Remember when we were in Ur and God reached out and he brought us out and he saved us, not based on anything that we could do. Remember when he did that? Could have did that, didn't do it. He could have been, he could have prayed or been grateful to God and the angels that had rescued him from Sodom. We don't see him doing any of this. He runs and he hides in a cave. So Lot was the first one to create a man cave. How convenient. I need a place where I can just go hide and be myself. Mm-hmm. That didn't go too well for Lot. Hey, this is not about a barn, okay? This is completely different. It's completely different. All right. And the sad thing is, listen, this, this is the sad thing. This is what happens when you go to your cave. This is what happens. We see Lot has less left Sodom. But Sodom hasn't left Lot. See, you can feel the weight of your sin. You can be confronted and convicted. You can have all that, all that stuff going on. And you go to your cave, and guess what? Your sin goes with you. Second Peter even goes on and tells us that Lot was greatly distressed over the sins of Sodom. So it wasn't like Sodom was looking around and going, Woo, yeah. All the homosexuals gang raping. Woo, let's do this thing. Right? Cheering on all the sin. Let's go. Let's, let's create some ways to be vile. Let's create some ways to defile our body. Let's invent some new ways of sinning. Come on, let's break commandments. Let's do it. Right? It wasn't Lot like, like Lot was doing that. He was greatly distressed about it. But listen, this teaches us something. He was distressed about it, but he failed to do anything about it. He was in the midst of it. It was grieving him, but he didn't respond appropriately. That means that we can be totally, listen to this, parents, and, and everybody actually, that means we can be totally aware of the prevalence of sin, but still be under its control. We can be aware of pornography. We can be aware of materialism. We can be aware of the dangers of being so individualistic. We can be aware of it and still under its control. See, Lot was aware of the city's sin, but he was seemingly unaware of its effects on him and his family. 
that is a peacetime mentality. Oh, it's, it's going to be, it'll all work out. God gave me the covenant. I, I'm a believer. I'm sure he'll do the same thing for my kids. It'll work out. Peacetime mentality. Lot did not go to war with his sin. He didn't train up his children in the ways of God and teach them how to go to war with their sin. So we see his daughters. What do his daughters do? This is what his daughters do. They come to, they come to each other and they say, listen. They, they, they basically, before I tell you about it, we already read it. They make decisions like so many so-called Christians do today. Totally based on pragmatics and absent from the spirit of God. Why you, we, we, we are appalled by this, rightly so. We're appalled by incest, rightly so. But do you know why they did it? Dad's got them in a cave. He's hopeless. He's lost all joy. He's just laying around the cave, wants to die. And these young, beautiful virgins, what are they thinking? He's going to die. And then we're on our own. And in this type of society, your husband and then your children were your social security. You had children so that when you were old, they, you had enough of them, they could take care of you and, and protect you and provide for you and that they're, they're your retirement account. Your children were your social security. So they're in the cave thinking, we've got no social security. There's no men around here. So the oldest, like a chip off the old block, devises a plan. This is what it says. Let's lie with dad. And that phrase is a crude phrase in the Hebrew. It's an explicit phrase. It's not the common word for sex. You know, in the Hebrew word, they say he knew her or she knew him. The word no in Hebrew is the common word for sex. It's the appropriate word. This is a dirty word coming from a dirty heart. And this is just the nail in the coffin for me. Lot, Lot's daughters get him drunk and they have sex with him. Both daughters get pregnant and give birth to sons. An incestuous relationship between father and daughters. Boom! Time bomb just went off. He's lost everything. He's lost everything. So I want to get, this, this is what's different about today. I'm going to get really practical now. Really practical. And I don't do this very often. Lot lived in a hot zone. Lot lived in a war zone with a peacetime mentality. Oh, it'll all work out. He didn't have this verse, but all things work together for the good of those who believe, right? Can we please put these verses together? All things work together for the good of those who believe. Let's, let's put that together with Lot. Did all things work together good for Lot? Lost his city, lost his home, lost his wealth, lost his friends, lost his sons-in-law, lost his wife, lost his daughter. Saved his soul because of the righteousness of Christ placed upon him because Jesus Christ lived the perfect life and died the substitutionary death and we get to receive that by faith in that work. 
because of God's election and God's grace to him, yes, he's saved. But he didn't fight his sin. He didn't stand up for righteousness. He didn't stand up for justice. He didn't work for holiness. And that cost him everything but his salvation. Men, women, is that how you want your epitaph to read? Everything not done for the sake of Christ is going to perish anyways. Is that how you want your epitaph to read? We are living in a war zone and we must have a wartime mentality or we risk wasting our lives. Have you ever thought of that? See, I think the seeker sensitive movement is so concerned with your soul. Forgets about your life. Forgets about your body. It forgets about reality. You can be saved and waste your life. We see that, right? Can we see that? Lot was saved by the miraculous and amazing grace of God, but he wasted his life. So let me get really practical here. We're going to see what we can learn from Lot's wasted life. Really practical. See how much time I have to get practical. Okay. Number one, nobody drifts into intimacy with God. Nobody drifts into intimacy with God. Parents, you won't drift towards discipleship and neither will your children. You're just not going to sit there and just float into holiness, float into nearness with God. So many parents think that if they bring their kids to church, that that will somehow be enough for their kids to love Jesus. The only problem with that is the Bible. It says, train up your children in the way that they should go. That says, teach these things in your home. Write them on your doorpost. Write them on your Sing them on them. Teach them at your dinner table, everywhere you are. Should be gospel-centered. Your home should be gospel-centered. You can bring your kids to church and listen to this. You can bring your kids to church and they can walk away loving games, loving music, loving entertainment, or loving the opposite sex. Church isn't enough. The gathering, when I say church, I'm talking about the gathering on Sunday, isn't enough. Lot's peacetime mentality kept him from discipling his wife and kids. So listen, what I don't want to hear today is this right-wing radicalistic message of remove yourself from a sinful city, move out to the suburbs, right? Create your little holy commune, all your Christians in one cul-de-sac. Lot could have lived in Sodom if Sodom wasn't in Lot. If Lot would have been a missionary and would have moved into Sodom and would have been discipling his wife and preaching the gospel and living in it and, and developing through the spirit of God, a missional community, got Lot probably could have had an impact on Sodom. But that's not what we see. We see Lot, that would be a picture of a wartime mentality. I'm in a hostile war zone. I better be vigilant. I better disciple my wife and kids. I better preach the gospel. I better study. I better pray. I better be on it. 
or else psh, my life will be wasted. But that's not what we see. We see Lot living in Sodom like he's in the peacetime, like he's in the tropics, like everything's going to go well for him. Doesn't matter what he does, right? People always want to worry about that. Doesn't matter what, like I can't do anything to be saved, so what's the matter? You can waste your life. That should concern you. He thought that his family would just drift towards Jesus and just drift into obedience. That's just not the case. So we have a lot of young parents in our church and I get this question pretty often. They say, okay, okay, okay. I know, I see, I'm convinced I need to disciple my family. But what, but what does that look like? How, how do I do that? Many of us who grew up in non-Christian homes or grew up in seeker-sensitive homes have no idea how to do this. We don't. That's not your fault. That's not our fault for not knowing how to do it. But I'm hoping today I'm going to spark enough interest and enough questions and provide enough resources that you're going to step into this, this calling that God's placed in your life. So here are a few suggestions, okay? This is how you want some ways to disciple your family. If you're single in this room, you could take these and apply them to yourself. Do you hear me? It's going to look different for a lot of people, but you can apply them to yourself and you need to. This is how you fight sin. This is how you have a wartime mentality. It's how you keep that vigilance. Okay? So listen, these are suggestions. They're not rules. I don't want you, if you're a little legalist, if you're firstborn in here, I don't want you to take them and say, okay, if I do these things, God will bless me. That's not what I'm saying. Okay? Don't turn these into rules. Okay? Do we hear that? Okay, good. Here we go. Number one, so we don't drift into discipleship. We have to be vigilant. We have to act. We have to wartime mentality. Number one, this is what happened. Dad, mom, single person, it starts with you. If you are not passionately seeking God, if you are not reading his word, if you are not spending time in prayer and making that a priority, if you're not living a life in a missional community where other people can help you live in line with the gospel, your kids will see that. And the most harmful thing for a child is to hear you preach the law, to hear you give the commandments, to hear you call for obedience, to hear you talk the church life, and to see your life where you don't even believe it yourself. You don't have affections that are stirred for Jesus. You don't read your Bible. You don't pray. You don't make time for communion. You don't repent. You just want them to do it. Some of us grew up with parents like that. And you don't want anything to do with Jesus. You think, if my dad knows Jesus, I don't want anything to do with him. He's going to make me like that. A legalistic, mean old man. Doesn't like fun. Right? I, I I don't want that God. Parents... It starts with you. It starts with you. Number two, dads, date your wife and your kids. Date your wife and your kids. You need to create weekly, bi-weekly, 
and monthly rituals, or we call them rhythms, where you take them, take your kids, either take them out together, and you also need times where you take them out individually on dates. Okay? Ice cream dates, donuts. I do donuts with dad every Saturday morning. I do donuts with dad, right? It's a rhythm. My kids, this is how we teach them the days of the week. That's how they know it. Is it missional community night, daddy? Yeah, it's missional community night, daddy. All right, cool. Is it your date night, daddy? Yeah, it's our date. Mommy, daddy, date night. Friday night, date night. That's what we do. Right? (gasps) Putting her to bed at night. (sighs) What is it? It's donuts with dad date tomorrow. (laughs) Yes, yes it is. And you know what I do? Listen, I am not a whole, I'm not this holier than thou man. I wake up in the morning, maybe they forgot. Maybe I can just sit here and drink my coffee today. They come running down the stairs. Donuts with dad. I want a pink one. <laughs> All right, let's go. And they love it. And they love it. All right? We do that as a family together. And then I also take my kids individually. My son, we just got him into wrestling. He loves it. I take him and I coach him at wrestling and I'm there during wrestling. I take him to work out with me at CrossFit. He loves that. My daughter, I take her on ice cream dates and go down to Lago Marcino's and she just geeks out about it. Right? Dads, you date your daughter so that she, when she goes on a real date later on, she understands what it's like. And when some fool tries to go Dutch... She'll look at her like, she'll look at him like, "Uh uh-uh. Right? She will have a self-worth because you have showed her what it's like to be in a dating relationship. That's part of it. So when some fool asks her to prom, she doesn't get all googly-eyed. She's been doted on and loved by her father for her whole life. It's a rhythm that you create. Create it with your boys, create it with your girls, create it with your wife. Doesn't have to be an expensive date night. Go to the bookstore, get a cup of coffee, sit down and ask each other heart level questions. Get the book of the questions of if, and just go through those questions of if. Because if you've been married more than probably three or four years, you've got into this routine where you think you know everything about her and you don't. You think you know everything about him and you don't. Go on a date and go through the book of if, the book of of questions, and start. And you're going to be amazed at the stuff that your wife's thinking about or your husband's thinking about. Bring up all kind of good gospel-centered conversation. All right. So, dads, date your wife and kids. My wife and I, we try to put this on a weekly thing for the date night. Friday night, we probably do it every other. All right. We do it probably do it every other week. And yes, that requires you have to get a babysitter. Right? You have to do some planning. Yes, it does. But this is how we, one of the ways we shepherd the hearts of our children. Okay? Date your wives. Date your kids. Number three. Repent openly and often. Repent openly and often. Parents, single people, I'm not just talking about repenting to God. Confess your sins one to another. It's important for you to air out that dirty laundry. Especially parents, if you um, blow it when we do, we blow it with our wife, we blow it with our kids. 
Don't just go to separate rooms of the house and wait for somebody to blow off steam. Just let it blow over. Lead your house in repentance. Lay your life down for your wife. Do not exasperate or provoke your children to anger, Paul tells us. Repent. You blow it with your kids, sit down, look them in the face and say, Son, I'm sorry. I'm a sinner. I still need the grace of Jesus. I blew up. I yelled at you. I should not have done that. I did that because I'm impatient and I have a wicked heart that wants to control the universe and I don't obey God. Repent like that. Not like, well, you really ticked me off, son, so it just got to me. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have yelled. Confess with good gospel-centered eyes. The reason you made me so mad, son, is because I think I'm God and I want to control the house. And I want to dictate everything that goes on in this house like I'm God, but I'm not God. And when things happen that I can't control, I get frustrated. Repent. Repent to your spouse. Repent openly and often. Number four, and this one might cause more questions than all the other ones. And I'm going to put a whole other post on parenting stuff. I'm going to put a whole other post with 20 things on it later. More than likely, if I get time, I'll do it later today. Here's the fourth one. Practice family worship. How many have, how many have heard of family worship? Seeker-sensitive households. If we were raised in that environment or a non-Christian environment, we have no idea what this means. Christians, listen to this. This is why it's important for us to study church history. Christians have practiced family worship for centuries. But it's incredibly rare to hear of anyone practicing it today. Even though it's a biblical mandate. Did you hear what I just said? What'd I say? That means it's a command. Teach these things to your children. Sing of these things in your home. Write these words on your heart. Eat, talk about them at the dinner table. This is a biblical mandate for a Christian household. But we've gone to evangelical, evangelical, evangelifish churches, seeker-sensitive churches, and we hear the same message week in, week out. And we don't know how to raise up our children in the, way they should go, in the way that they should go. It doesn't just mean discipline. It does mean that. It doesn't just mean bringing them to church and throwing them in the youth ministry when they're old enough. Oh, man, I can't do nothing with these kids. Sure hope that youth pastor fixes them. Yeah, that 20-year-old kid, he'll do a great job. Mm-hmm. Foolish. Foolish. Christians for centuries practice. And, but hey, it's all we know. I get that. It's all I knew. For centuries, Christians have practiced this thing called family worship. Okay? Now, family worship will look different for every household. Family worship will look different for empty nesters. It'll look different for parents with only small children. It'll look different with parents, parents with teenage kids. That's okay. It'll look different for single people. If you live in a house with other people, you should be practicing family worship. 
If you live in a house with other people, you should be practicing family worship. Okay? This is what it looks like for us. All right, I'm just going to get, I'm going to, resources are about to come out. That's why I said this is going to be really practical, really pragmatic. We don't do this very often. All right, so this is what it looks like for me. Since I work from home, I have the, the benefit of being at home in the morning with when my kids wake up. So the first thing that I do with my kids, my wife's still in bed with the baby because she's up nursing all night doing all that stuff. And I just roll over and grunt when that happens, right? So she, she sleeps in a little bit later than I do. So what happens is first thing in the morning, I get up, I have my coffee, I, do, I get up before everybody, I do my devotions, I do my prayer, and then Javin and Zoe come stumbling out of bed. We sit down at the breakfast table and we read this, okay? The Jesus Storybook Bible. Every person with kids should have this. If you are, listen, I'm not trying to make you feel dumb. If you feel biblically, biblically illiterate, like you don't understand the whole thrust of the Bible, you should read this. It's one of the best Bibles that connects the story of God and connects Jesus through every, every page. Okay. We read this nearly every day. Okay. We'll miss a couple, we'll miss days. If maybe I have an early morning meeting or the kids sleep late or something, we'll miss days. Again, it's not legalism. Okay. But probably five days a week, we're doing this four days at the least we're doing this. Okay. We start off by reading one story in the Jesus storybook Bible. I'm teaching my kids devotion start in the morning. You start your day with Jesus. Okay. It's a rhythm that I'm creating in their life right now. That's just, now you can do this at night. You can do this at lunchtime. You can do this at bedtime. When, when we just had Javin, we just did it at bedtime. That was easy with one kid, man. It was easy, right? Now you got three different age groups. Difficult, right? So, but it's important that you have some time where you read the Bible together as a family every day. All right. The next thing that we do is we go through this right here with my son. Okay. This is just Javin. He's, he's old enough to do this. It's called the big book of questions and answers. Basically it's like a giant catechism, but it's got, it's got lessons. It's got talking time, action time, questions and answers. Whoa. Prayer times. It's got all, and we just do, we listen, we do one of these a week. We do one of these a week. It's got a memory verse. We try to memorize that verse that week. We do one of these a week. And I try to think throughout the week of how can I make this real to him? We're talking about the first commandment. All right. Then later on in the week, I'm going to bring up questions about the first commandment. I'm going to teach him about it. Okay. When we're walk, when we're going to the gym, I'm going to talk to him about the first commandment, ask him how he's breaking it. Well, what happens when you break it? Right? I'm going to give, him, give me an opportunity, opportunity to teach him the gospel. Okay? Coloring activities. So we do this. We do one of these a week. Really good. Cheap resource. Great stuff. Then we do this. We've been doing this for probably two years. It's my first book of questions and answers. It's a catechism. How many don't know what catechism is? Okay? Catechism is the way that the ancients used to teach things. Okay. It's a memorization. It's a, it's a question and answer. Let me just give you one right here. I wish my son was up here so he could show you this. Here's a question. What is God? My son would tell you God is a spirit. All right. That's the answer. So it's a question and then an answer and they memorize them. I'm not trying to brag on my kid, but we've been doing this for a year and a half and my kids probably got a hundred of these memorized. Okay. What is God? God is a spirit. Who is God? How many gods are there? There's one God. How many persons are in the one God? There's three. Guess what? My son doesn't understand any, have any of it, what it means. He has it memorized though. So later on, when the reasoning kicks in, he's going to have this to pull from. Okay. When we teach him letters, they don't know what that means either. 
right? Teach him hot stove. He doesn't know what that means. He'll learn. Okay. So I pump this full. I I want my kid to be full of this stuff. Okay. It's not going to guarantee the salvation of my child. It's not, but it's going to help. Now, listen, if you have teenagers, you need to be doing this. It doesn't, does it matter if they like it? No, it doesn't matter if they like it. A teenager. He's a teenager. He doesn't like putting deodorant on. You make him do it. You, if they're in your house, they participate in family worship. That's how you do it. And they have a good attitude. And yes, my kids and your kids should get disciplined for being foolish during prayer time. They should get disciplined for not sitting and listening to a Bible story. They should get disciplined for that. And yes, God wants them to learn that. And God wants them to sit in church and be able to sit still and listen. And God wants that for them. So if you've got young kids, this is great. It's also great for you, parents. I don't know how many times I've read one go, and I don't know the answer to it. It's true. You, so so for, for, for teenagers and for, for adults, you could do this with your wife. There's, an app, there's a new iPad app that Tim Keller and the Gospel Coalition just put out called New City Catechism. It's a free download on iPad. And it's, it's got 52 questions and answers. It's great. You can, also download, you can also download for free on the internet or buy a Heidelberg Catechism. is a great one to go through. All right? It's for your teenagers that are, that are and they have, more, they have more of these as well. I'm just, I'm just, I'm throwing it out there. Every family and every household should be doing this stuff. You should be catechizing your kids. You should be reading the Bible to them. You should be praying with them every day. These are things that you should be doing. Now, if this is brand new, I'm giving, I'm giving you a lot of resources, okay? I would, I would suggest picking up one of these two books, Disciplines of a Godly Family by Kent and Barbara Hughes. It's going to go through all kinds of rhythms that you can create as a family to help you um, raise up your children the way that you should go. Or if you're single, there's a Disciplines of a Godly Man. Sorry, ladies, there's not a Disciplines of a Godly Woman. I'm, I'm sorry, there's just not. But there is? Disciplines of a Godly Woman. I just don't own it, so I bet. So you could get Disciplines of a Godly Woman as well. Okay, so I would recommend that you read this. The, the point is, the point is that you make this a routine. All right, so again, so that's how we start. Now listen, that's just what, so listen, that's how we start our day. Okay, we start our day with prayer, with Bible reading, and with catechism. Okay, then at dinner time, we, we sing hymns. At dinner, we sing the doxology, praise God from whom all blessings flow. We sing that at dinner. We, we've memorized the scripture that it's kind of liturgical. I say, um, oh man, of course I would forget it right here in, in the spotlight. What do I say, babe? In our prayer. You can't remember either. Of course, on the spotlight, you can't remember. Um, may God, uh, shoot. It's a scripture that we have memorized that we pray every night. <laughs> But when you're in the spotlight, you tend to forget it. We never pray under the spotlight. All right. May God be gracious to us and bless us. And Amanda says, and make it, the family says, and make his face shine upon us, that his ways may be known on all the earth, his salvation among all nations. So it's a scripture. We pray it in liturgical fashion. It's reminding my kids it's about the glory of God. We're asking God to bless us. We want to be on mission for him. We pray it every night. Uh, even when we have na- we had our neighbors over and our kids, we sang and our kids prayed it. Great missional opportunity to have a conversation. Okay. Um, so we do that. We pray at dinner. 
and we have, we, we do this, we sing and we have that. that. That is what family worship is. Bible reading, catechism, prayer, singing. Structure it how you want. When my kids get older, I plan on doing it all at dinner time. And we have all different schedules because we've made dinner time a priority. That's another thing to put in there. Dinner time is a priority. Four, night, four or five nights a week, we have dinner as a family at 530. Okay? And when the kids get older, I, we plan on having right after dinner, we do a prayer, we do a singing at dinner, and then right after dinner, we have, we're going to sit on the couch and have Bible time. Right now, it just doesn't work. Right? I think God's called us to do this, parents. You figure out how you're going to do it. I understand. Guy works third shift. She works for, I understand all this stuff. You just, you got, you got to figure it out. You've got to figure it out. You can do it. At, if you got one, just do it at bedtime. It's the easiest way to do it. And then for us, my wife and I, we do Bible studies together right now. It's every other, about every other Monday, every other Monday, we're working through the book of Galatians together we're doing that together. Okay. That's how, that's, that's what discipleship looks like in our home. And then just the on the go training, constantly meditating on scripture, constantly asking your kids worldview questions, trying to shape them into, into people with a biblical framework. Okay. That's what discipleship looks like in my home. I'm not Jesus. Okay. You, you can copy this. I pray that you learn from it. Follow me as I follow Jesus. I pray that it's helpful to you. I pray that you kind of get a kick in the butt a little bit and go, Oh, I thought I just had to bring my kids to church. Family worship. What's it going to look like for you? It doesn't have to be elaborate, just biblically faithful. Here's a word, ladies and gents, fun and consistent. If you're going to try to preach an hour long sermon to your three-year-old, your wife should slap you. She has my permission. Make it fun. Two verses. Read two verses. What do you think that means, guys? They're going to give you terrible answers. That's heresy, son, actually, but good thought. Right? You're engaging them in it. They that's a great point. Actually, they would have burned people for saying that a few hundred years ago, son. Right? So do yourself a favor, buy that book. You can also buy some family worship stuff. Vody Bauckham has got a lot of resources out there. All right, if you need more resources, contact me. Everybody knows, kind of a beatnik, kind of a nerd, theological nerd. I like to read, so I've got a lot of books, and I'll let you know um, I can help you, okay? Lastly, think, pray, and discuss schooling options. Think, pray, and discuss schooling options. Listen, I'm a public school kid, okay? God saves people from all different backgrounds and nothing we can do can guarantee our kids salvation or that they're going to finish their lives well. But you've got to understand this. Our public school system is by definition an agnostic education. By definition. And God commands us, listen to me, God commands us to teach our kids to love God with all our minds. Do you hear that? Commanded to think deeply, commanded to worship through deep thought and studying theology and studying the Bible, commanded to see how the Bible informs everything that I do, including science. 
informs everything. I'm commanded to teach my kid that. I can't just slap them and go, go off to public school education where they're going to tell you there is no God. They're going to tell you that you're, you come from a monkey. Right? They're not going to teach you religion. They're not going to teach you ethics. They're not going to teach you logic. Just go off. Have fun. And what do they teach them? They teach them to worship sports. They teach them to worship the opposite sex. They teach them that religion is foolish. And then we, if we let our kids go through public school without any supplementary education, then we send them off to college, we wonder why. In droves, they're leaving the church. Droves. Am I saying everyone should private school their kids or everyone should homeschool their kids? Absolutely not. I'm saying have the conversation. And if you choose public school, you better talk about how you're going to supplement that education in some ways. Do you hear me? Public school education has to be supplemented. You have to teach science. Did you hear what I just said? You have to teach science from a biblical perspective, not just have faith, son. Just believe. God created everything. Just believe. When the teacher is offering empirical evidence and you say, just believe and have faith, you sound like a fool. Give the child some resources. Give the child some biblical resources. Give them some books and understanding science from a biblical perspective. There's a lot of answers there. Philosophy, mathematics, whatever it is. God created it. It's all for his glory. So you, if you're public school education, your kids, you've got to supplement that, that education in some ways. How else do you teach, him, teach your children to love God with all their mind? How, how else do you do it? I don't know if you can. So all I'm saying is you got to have that conversation. Have that conversation. Listen, I could go on all day and all night about this because you, you can see I'm passionate about it. I've got three young kids. I, want, I don't want to fit. I, I want to finish well. And I know... I drift into complacency. I drift into sin. I drift into a heart with weak affections. who doesn't want to worship God. Don't want to do. I drift that way. I realize that. And I don't, I don't want to finish. I don't want to finish unwell. I want my kids to love Jesus and worship Jesus. And, and by God's grace, maybe serve the church someday. Maybe there'll be missionaries someday. I want my kids to be like arrows in my quiver sent out on mission into the world. And I want to have a wartime mentality and finish my life on this earth well. And yeah, I'm 33, but I'm thinking about my finish. I'm thinking about my epitaph. I want to be a good steward of all the good things that God has given me. I want to train my family in this church to love God with all their hearts, souls, and mind and strength in the midst of the war zone of our current culture. And listen, I realize that this sermon might bring up more pragmatic questions than it offers answers. I get that. But pragmatism is rarely our problem. We can figure things out if we really think it's important. What we need is, we need to be shocked by this story of Lot finishing unwell. Men, you chase the dollar and you forget about your family, it will not go well for you. Young person, you chase pornography and you forget about holiness, it will not go well for you. Single person, you chase a life of drunkenness and sin and hookups, it will not go well for you. Sin, disobeying God, it kind of goes, you know what it's like? 
It's like dragging a horse and carriage with no wheels. You kind of get where you need to go, but the whole time that, that wagon starts to fall apart. And eventually it's all going to come apart. I promise you that. The Bible promises us this. It'll kind of work. Your life will kind of work, but it won't work the way it's meant to. Holiness and life inside the blessing of God and the gospel, it's life with the wheels on. It's how things are supposed to be. Now listen, what I, want, what, I, what I want us to do, and this is weird, I know it's different. What I'd like us to do as a church family is to enter into this season of Lent by asking God to deepen our awareness of him, that things would go well for us, is intimacy with him, his, an experience of his nearness, and further obedience to him through him, through the power of the gospel. Now, for those of you in here, Lent is not just a Catholic thing, if you thought that. Okay, again, it's been practiced by Christians for hundreds of years. Okay, what Lent is, it's the 40 days before Resurrection Sunday, and it's meant to symbolize the 40 years um, spent in the desert. It's meant to symbolize... just the 40s that go all the way through the Bible and specifically the 40 years Jesus, 40 days Jesus spent in the desert being tempted and fasting. It's a time to fast, to pray, to develop some new rhythms, to take some things out of our life that suck up our time and our affections and to focus on and prepare our hearts with repentance on the coming or on the death of Christ Good Friday, to prepare ourselves for Good Friday, and then to experience the joy of Resurrection Sunday. Okay? So I'm going, more than likely on Monday, I'm going to post some, some teachings on Lent, some, some important things to know about the seasons that are coming up, and then I'll post. I'm going to ask our church to participate in a fast. Okay? And I'm thinking it to be, most of, many of us in here have probably never fasted. So it's going to, it could be like a progressive fast where you could do one week you do one meal a day, or maybe for me, I think I'm, I think I'm going to do caffeine and alcohol. Okay. I'm going to, that, that's big. All right. I'm just going to let you know. So I'm going to fat, I'm going to fast from that for the first week. And then maybe the second week, social media, maybe the third week, movies, entertainment, television, maybe the fourth week shopping from anything that's not essential, fighting some of the consumeristic, individualistic, cave dweller mentalities. And maybe this could be progressive. You know, I'm going to see how I feel after a week with no caffeine. <laughs> if I'm up here preaching like this, I might have a problem. Right? So I'm going to call our church into that. And it's not to do it so you feel good and pat yourself on the back. It's not to do it to make God happy. Okay? It's to prepare our hearts for worship. Okay? I'm going to invite, I'm inviting all the church to do that. I'll post on the city some more stuff about that in the coming. And each week I'll post the new, the new thing. Cool? Let me pray. Father, we are all like Lot. We need your rescue. We need to be saved. We live like we, we exist in a peacetime world, like we're, we have this, mental, this peacetime mentality. Father, we need to be awakened. We need to be saved. We need to be shocked. We need to be cut to the heart. We need to be convicted. 
We need to be filled with your spirit. We need to be reminded that you entered into this story, entered into human history, and you lived the life that none of us fail to live, that all of us fail to live. And you died the death that we all deserve. But that by faith, Christ's life and Christ's death can be counted as ours. We can have a new life that empowers us to worship, that empowers us to worship with the family. This new life empowers us to disciple our family and disciple our kids and to make disciples of all the nations. That you've saved us. You've filled us with your spirit. You've given us boldness. You have given us a new identity and recreated us through the power of the gospel to do these things. No, we can't do them in our flesh, but yes, through your spirit, we can. So I ask that you would give us the grace to do this. When we, when we fail and when we fall, you would remind us of the gospel. We're not righteous because we practice family worship. We're not righteous because we fast. We're not righteous because we're, we obey. We're righteous because we've been given it by faith through the work of Jesus on the cross. I pray that you would remind us of that as we go forth, as we walk towards the table of the Lord's Supper. You would remind us of our deep need for you our deep brokenness. You would also remind us of your provision and your satisfaction that you offered up through your son. We take the body, we break it. This is your body. We take the cup and say, this is the blood of the covenant. We drink it because you've given it to us by gift of grace. In Jesus' name, amen.